Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists. Empowerment. Talk Radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person, because ultimately our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power, one One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good evening and thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground where we're transforming truth to power one broadcast at a time. It's so good to be back on this mic and we're coming into the program this week. Uh, After a tough week, a very tough week both, both politically, socially, in our judicial system, And um, we want to start out uh, telling you about what's up for us tonight, tonight at Our Common Ground. Our guest will be Chauncey DeVega, the social, cultural, and political critic and journalist, the founder and um, 
sharer of truth and wisdom at uh, We Are Respectable Negroes. He's been with us before. He's been in our common ground voice for many years. Tonight, we're looking at the souls of black folks. Have we lost it? For those of you who have not read the book, I will give you a brief summary and analysis of what it's all about. But before we do that, we come into this broadcast understanding that Darren Wilson is still free, has not been charged, and not have has has he been arrested. The headlines are showing us that the ISIS leader was hit and perhaps critically wounded. And um, today, President Barack Obama announced his nominee for the uh, Attorney General to replace the outgoing Attorney General, Eric uh, Holder. Loretta Lynch, she's tough. She's super competent. She's a legal scholar. And she is persistent. And we'll look to see. And if you have any comments about that, you certainly can call us and talk to us about it tonight. Let me tell you a little about uh, our guests tonight. For those of you who have not had the pleasure of either reading or um, Joining with us uh, when he has been with us, Chauncey DeVega is sometimes a respectable Negro. Uh, he is the editor and founder of We Are Respectable Negroes, which can be found at www.chaunceydevega.com. He's a race man in progress, a black pragmatist, a ghetto nerd, and we're going to talk to him and ask him about that, cultural critic and essayist. And, of course, he has an eye for the deepness of the issue of race in America. He has been a guest on BBC, Ring of Fire numerous times, Ed Schultz Show, Make It Plain, Joshua Holland's Alternate Radio Hour, the Tom Hartman Radio Show, the Burt Cohen Radio Show, and, of course, he is an Our Common Ground voice. His writings are featured by Salon, Alternet, the New York Daily News, and the Daily Coast. And we do not know his name, but we do know his face. And one day I'm going to walk the streets of somewhere near Chicago and find him. So let's put our seatbelts on because we're going to be talking about the souls of black folks. If you do not know the book, uh, The Souls of Black Folk, written by W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, serves as a testament to our ancestor Du Bois' position as one of the foremost scholars on race and religion in general and the black experience in particular he informs us in this book of a variety of challenges faced by blacks as a result of inequities in every societal arena 
and you should not walk around not having read this book. First and foremost, he emphasizes the legacy of racism and its deleterious effects on the lives of black people, certain consequences of racism and discrimination, which were clear, separate spheres of life, physical abuse, paternalism, and economic disenfranchisement. He outlines in the book the souls of black folks, other consequences which were less visible, but just as detrimental, angst, conflicted identity, you all recognizing any of this stuff, conflicted identity, self-hate, self-doubt, and a lack of industrialness and self-reliance. For him, issues of race were at the heart of the conflicted relationship between whites and blacks in America. And it is a reader because he suggests that the economic plight of blacks began during slavery when persons worked for no money and continued after emancipation when blacks worked for very little money. He talks in this book about political disenfranchisement and black leadership. He also looks at the significance of religion and the black church, the importance of education. The Souls of Black Folk holds a unique position, both as a religious commentary, a social critique to the human spirit. It is certainly a literary treasure and an empirical analysis of political and economic conditions. And what we're suggesting tonight at Our Common Ground, because that really does sound like what we do at Our Common Ground, we're suggesting that following this show, if you have not read The Souls of Black People, of Black Folks, that you must before you even begin to discuss the current status of black people in America. And we really thank uh, Chauncey DeVega for joining us tonight. So to frame this discussion, and before we do, I do want to mention that I apologize for the last two weeks that uh, we have been off the air. Um, I did uh, take a vacation, um, a much-needed vacation, a vacation that was off the grid, um, really warm, beautiful, jewel-colored beaches, and water, ocean, and I needed that. The other is that we are also in the process of building a new studio, Um, and so I have a strangeness going on around me, but we have been able to drag in a chair and a table to be able to continue our broadcast. I want to shout out to Olivia Simmons. She is my beloved cousin, more than a cousin, sister. And she was the first producer 
of Our Common Ground back in 1985. Um, she was our first producer, and she was with us for many years um, in the background making this a solid broadcast that was both accessible, usable, and empowering. And we just want to shout out to her tonight, uh, letting her know that we are thinking about her and that I am the leader right now of Team Olivia. We love you, my sister, always love you, and we will always be grateful for what you have been in my life and the life of our family. Thank you so very much. So I see Chauncey has uh, joined us, and we're going to go ahead and frame this out. And right after this, we'll be joined by Chauncey DeVega. We are respectable Negroes, sometimes. A people thus handicapped ought not to be asked to race with the world, but rather allowed to give all its time and thought to its own social problems. But alas... While sociologists gleefully count his bastards and his prostitutes, the very soul of the toiling, sweating black man is darkened by the shadow of a vast despair. Men call the shadow prejudice, and learnedly explain it as the natural defense of culture against barbarism, learning against ignorance, purity against crime, the higher against the lower races, to which the Negro cries Amen, and swears that to so much of this strange prejudice as is founded on just homage to civilization, culture, righteousness, and progress, he humbly bows and meekly does obeisance. But, before that nameless prejudice that leaps beyond all this, he stands helpless, dismayed, and well-nigh speechless. Before that personal disrespect and mockery, the ridicule and systematic humiliation the distortion of fact and wanton license of fancy, the cynical ignoring of the better and the boisterous welcoming of the worse, the all-pervading desire to inculcate disdain for everything black, from Toussaint to the devil, before this there arises a sickening despair that would disarm and discourage any nation save that black host to whom discouragement is an unwritten word. But the facing of so vast a prejudice could not but bring the inevitable self-questioning, self-disparagement, and lowering of ideals, whichever accompany repression, and breed in an atmosphere of contempt and hate. Whisperings and portents came home upon the four winds. Lo, we are diseased and dying, cried the dark hosts. We cannot write. Our voting is vain. What need of education, since we must always cook and serve? And the nation echoed and enforced this self-criticism, saying, Be content to be servants and nothing more. What need of higher culture for half-men? Away with the black man's ballot by force or fraud. And behold, the suicide of a race. Nevertheless, out of the evil came something of good, the more careful adjustment of education to real life the clearer perception of the Negro's social responsibilities, and the sobering realization of the meaning of progress. So dawned the time of Sturm und Drang. Storm and stress today rocks our little boat, 
on the mad waters of the world sea. There is within and without the sound of conflict, the burning of body and rending of soul. Inspiration strives with doubt, and faith with vain questionings. The bright ideals of the past, physical freedom, political power, the training of brains and the training of hands, all these, in turn, have waxed and waned, until even the last grows dim and overcast. Are they all wrong? All false? No, not that. But each alone was oversimple and incomplete. The dreams of a credulous race childhood, or the fond imaginings of the other world which does not know and does not want to know our power. To be really true, all these ideals must be melted and welded into one. The training of the schools we need today more than ever. The training of deft hands, quick eyes and ears, and above all, the broader, deeper, higher culture of gifted minds and pure hearts. The power of the ballot we need in sheer self-defense, else what shall save us from a second slavery? Freedom, too, the long-sought, we still seek. The freedom of life and limb, freedom to work and think, the freedom to love and aspire. Work culture, liberty, all these we need, not singly, but together, not successively, but together, each growing and aiding each, and all striving toward that vaster ideal that swims before the Negro people, the ideal of human brotherhood gained through the unifying ideal of race, the ideal of fostering and developing the traits and talents of the Negro, not in opposition to or contempt for other races, but rather in large conformity to the greater ideals of the American Republic, in order that some day on American soil two world races may give each to each those characteristics both so sadly lack. We the darker ones come even now not altogether empty-handed. There are today no truer exponents of the pure human spirit of the Declaration of Independence than the American Negroes. There is no true American music but the wild, sweet melodies of the Negro slave. The American fairy tales and folklore are Indian and African, and, all in all, we black men seem the sole oasis of simple faith and reverence in a dusty desert of dollars and smartness. Will America be poorer if she replace her brutal dyspeptic blundering with light-hearted but determined Negro humility, or her coarse and cruel wit with loving, jovial good humor, or her vulgar music with the soul of the sorrow songs? Merely a concrete test of the underlying principles of the great republic is the Negro problem, and the spiritual striving of the freedmen's sons is the travail of souls whose burden is almost beyond the measure of their strength, but who bear it in the name of an historic race, in the name of this the land of their fathers' fathers, and in the name of human opportunity. And now what I have briefly sketched in large outline, let me on coming pages tell again in many ways, with loving emphasis and deeper detail, that men may listen to the striving in the souls of black folk.
County to Vega. Thank you so much, my brother, for joining us tonight. I know it sounds like I'm having a funeral for black people, but I think that there we aren't far from that. How are you? I'm all right. How are you doing? I, I, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm in the dregs. I've been singing Lift Every Voice, all the Negro National Anthem, all day long. Um came back in here on Tuesday night, left the airport, went to vote, came home, and watched as America embraced the worst of what we have to offer on the political landscape. So that's how I am, and that's where I am, and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) How are you? I'm doing all right. I think you got to put on some James Brown Night Train or George <laughs> As a matter Clinton of fact, or... this, this is for you. Uh, uh, I, I just... How's that? <laughs> I think if you're working around three raises of your spirits, whatever works for you, because you can't give in to racial battle fatigue you got to keep your head held high, and you also can't hold on too tight to the false promises of electoral politics. Well, you know, that was one of the reasons why I think your coming to our common ground tonight is, is, is so appropriate, because you do help us to hold it up, even when we feel like we've been awash in white privilege, white supremacy, and and white corruption uh, in our lives. You know, Chauncey, I really think that we have to, we we really do, and this is on a serious note here, that we have to keep in mind to the extent to which we are able to shore up our sense of dignity and our sense of the reality of our achievements and lives in this country and our responsibility to, to tone the moral signals for this country. If we lose that, we've lost our souls. And 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 you know, and which is why I think the theme of um Black Folks by Du Bois is so important for us to understand at this point cuz we've been here before. You know, I'm I'm of two minds, so I always go back to Lonnie Guineer's book. I always mention it, The Miner's Canary, the idea that black and brown folks and the poor and others really are the miner's canary because what happens to us inevitably will happen happen to white folks, uh, the white middle class and white upper class, sooner rather than later. But the problem is you have a, a great mass of white folk who are deeply invested psychically, emotionally, and materially in white privilege and in white supremacy. So even when they see black and brown folks being shot dead in the street, uh, harassed and killed by racist thug police in places like Ferguson and elsewhere, instead of th- seeing this as a human rights issue, right, where they say, my God, this could happen to anybody, instead they default to a position, well, these unarmed young black people must have had it coming. Uh, if there's racism, it's those black folk complaining. And then when you even ask white folks in recent surveys, I'm sure you talked about this, that even when they're made aware of the uh, inequities in the criminal justice system, and I put that in quotation marks because there's no justice in the criminal justice system, and that it's racist and unfair, they still support it. But I always go back to racial battle fatigue. You've got to keep your head up. You can't let yourself be distracted. As I say, you know, politics is professional wrestling. Every, uh, just in the modern era, every president has lost an off-term, midterm election, and now you have the question or the issue of your first black president. Of course he's going to lose even more. <laughs> and then, you know, what are the stakes, really? You know, I, I sound a little cynical about that, but I think a lot of folks are getting worked up over a situation that really is just the status quo ante, as they say at the casino. 
Well, you know, it's not just the midterm elections, Chauncey, uh, that I have been thinking about in terms of what the real results of this midterm election is going to mean and the di- and the public discourse that's coming up in regard to the 2016 politics. Because I'm a firm believer that politics is only one spoke of the liberation struggle. It's an important uh, stroke. Sometimes it 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 matters um, intensely, and sometimes it doesn't matter at all. But the thing that I am thinking about is in terms of how many black people rely upon the programs that states do not provide, that the federal government does provide, that states have the ability to revise that the federal government has the ability to shore up. And and by that I mean this is the war on poor people in this country. And over the next two years, the issue of social security programs, the issue of of um, uh, federal assistance to poor people is just going to be undermined. And I think that while you and I might do well and a lot of my listeners out there might do well, there are going to be poor people who are going to see the system totally crumbling from under them and having no hope and seeing a lot of very destructive change. I think you're onto something there, and I and I will stand up for the the folks who are estimated to be doing better than they actually are, and I put myself in that category because we're all going to be affected one way or another by the destruction of our country's Ab- economy. Ab- absolutely. Right? And the social safety net, but I mean, you're onto something there. There's a, an irony there, this deep paradox, is that red state America receives more money per capita, per dollar, rather, than any other part of the country. So if you're talking about the folks who are really, quote, unquote, sucking on the proverbial government tit, it's poor white people in this country. And also on a per capita basis, I mean, you can go look at the political science and sociology journals. Uh, white folks as a group uh, receive more, especially rich people. They don't talk about this. In terms of a return on their tax dollars, uh, how much you actually get back from the government as opposed to how much taxes you pay, it's actually the rich and the upper middle class and the middle class who get a heck of a lot more out of this game than the poor, but I shake my head, and I've written a lot about it, as you know, on ChaunceyDeVega.com, Ring of Fire Radio and TV, and I've talked about it. This is really the right wing, the Tea Party GOP, talking about killing the useless eaters, and I've said that in print, and I've said it on air, on TV and radio, where you see this hateful rhetoric that quite literally you can draw connections back to Nazi Germany, where they're talking about poor people are useless, uh, women should be subservient to men, gays and lesbians should be marginalized, and the only people who should really have a vote are rich white men. And that's where the, the joke is, right? So you have this old history going back to, you know, you were quoting Brother Du Bois, going back to we always talk about Bacon's Rebellion, that moment when slavery became a condition uh, permanently associated or semi-permanently associated with black folk as opposed to indentured servants, which was both black and white. And the way that the rich white folks in the 17th century, the plantation class, figured out, hey, we'll destroy any bonds between poor whites and poor blacks. We'll make black people permanent slaves. We'll give white people guns. We'll give them land once they finish their term of indentured servitude. So the 1% don't care about color, right? But they're able, these corporate, the, the banksters and the corporatocracy, they can use white racial animus to manipulate poor and working class white people into voting against their self-interest. Because as you smartly pointed out, the knives are sharpened for everybody. But the unfortunate part about it is you have a good part of the white public that simply doesn't realize that racism, the psychological wages of whiteness, are not cashing themselves in the way they used to. Well, you know, 
there is an, a, another element to this, and that is that um, I, I'm, I've lived through Jim Crow, segregation, the civil rights movement, the black liberation movement, and as it gets curled back as the rights, both civil rights, the human rights, and the acknowledgement of how our economic systems um, and, and, and systems, as Michelle Alexander calls them, the new Jim Crow has and does affect not only how we live, but how we perceive our living. And if you begin to curl those things back as we regress back to an America of, nine, of the 1940s and the 1950s, we, we go to that place with generations of people who do not recognize, cannot name the progress that we are that we are that we have that we are losing in this process. You know, cuz they still see an an African American president. They still see a black attorney general. They still see and hear the rhetoric of progress. But because of a lack of information, I mean, when you when you think about the number of children graduating from high school this year and how much they know and understand about black history, it really informs how they see what is happening around them, if, in fact, they see it, um, affects them. I'm worried about the dignity of black people. I was I was thinking too, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pose. This is why I love coming on your show. Is this, if you're the first person I was telling somebody earlier today, I said I'm going on our common grounds. Janice is my internet media. We are respectable Negroes. Godmother, the first person who ever gave me an invitation <laughs> to uh, go elsewhere and sell my wares when ChauncyVega.com started with five followers and ten people a day. So I always feel a special obligation to you. So as I said, we're friends. We can go back and forth, which is part of the fun of the show. But you you said that Obama and Holder represent progress. So I'm gonna give you a challenging. Um, counter-argument. Is a black and brown face on a society that's still structured around institutional white supremacy really progress, number one? And number two, given a historical example, think about after the civil rights movement when you had the rise of our chocolate cities, where you had black presidents, right, rather black uh, mayors in places like Detroit. But at that same moment, you had the rise of Reagan and neoliberalism destroying those cities and taking all the money from them. So you have this, you know, it's, it's, it's a really dark observation in a lot of ways. You have a black man, a president who happens to be black, He's very conservative. He's a Rockefeller Republican in an increasingly conservative Democratic Party. You have Holder, who has, you know, he had the power of attorney general, but he can't stop young black folk from being disproportionately incarcerated. He chooses not to intervene. We've got young black people being killed by these thug police departments. And could it be that you have Obama and Holder and you have the symbolic victory, quote-unquote, of the black freedom struggle just in a moment where between the Supreme Court interest groups and people like the Koch brothers, who are really John Birchers, and globalization buying democracy – that you have a, a president who happens to be black on a sinking ship. Am I just being too negative, or is that just a little too well, much? Well, no, but but I think I think you're you're right on point, and I absolutely agree with you. But I have to take my third eye and look at people who don't have that kind of insight. I, I think I think we lose a sense 
of who black people really are in this country, the people who do take pride, the people who have started to pay attention because we have an African-American president. I think the people who are awakening because they have been inspired by this symbolic progress. And, And those people are the ones who are going to lose their black souls when they do come to the reality, when they their lives are facing the reality of 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 what is happening. And by the way, um, Charles Koch was a uh, John Bircher. He was a professed John Bircher. Mm-hmm. So so that's that's my point, and that's why I raise the issue of the souls of black folks. Have we lost it? Is it getting lost in all of this? Are we losing? I mean, you know, I told somebody the other day, Alpha of uh, the Alpha Show at uh, TruthWorks Network, that you know there are people, and um, and I might consider myself one of them, who have, have stopped believing in this hope thing, but I still believe in change <laughs> because the Obama brand of hope has simply dissolved. But but let's talk about police brutality, police uh, the material, the militarization of police and how that happened. What what what's your thoughts about how that happened, why it happened and what it's going to mean? I just want to I want to in the light of Ferguson. Oh, absolutely. You know, we're certainly going to chop that up and break it down. I mean, it's a critically important issue. But I just want to take a step, one step back, just for a quick second, if you do indulge me. So we're talking about the souls of black people, right? Du Bois' seminal work and the idea that African Americans are people of the world, right? We're citizens of the world. We have relationships to others, and we have provided singular gifts in many ways to American democracy. It's politics, arts, culture, and letters. But now you've seen this as well. There's been recent uh, surveys a few years ago where they asked African Americans, is there one race of black people or two? Going back to the Chris Rock joke. Remember that Chris Rock joke? They're black yeah, people uh-huh. and they're you-know-what's, a word that I choose not to use in the spirit of Richard Pryor. I don't want to repeat our own uh, ugliness and wickedness, that evil white supremacist word. So you have this bifurcation within the black community, many would suggest, where you have this sort of transformation in consciousness, of course, across generations, across class, about these debates about blackness and linked fate, what Brother Michael Dawson would call linked fate in his important book, Behind the Mule. And could that be fracturing? And never mind you have the idea and the rise of what we would call elevated ethnics, meaning Afro-Caribbean immigrants and others who don't necessarily identify with the black American experience. And then to push it even harder, you have these clown celebrities going on the TV, right, uh, appointing themselves opinion leaders, talking about, well, there's a new type of black person in town, and we're the new blacks. And the reality is that we're all still tied together, and we all still suffer in a society structured around institutional white supremacy, both poor black folk and working class and rich black folks. So maybe there's something going on with this, push to sort of transform this consciousness to say, well, there are no more really black people. Black America, that phrase is anachronistic. But there is a lived experience of blackness. And when you change that, that language, as you pointed out, then you rob us of the mental and physical and material and political steel to confront white supremacy. Because now we're looking internalized, right? We've internalized white supremacy instead of looking outward. We don't have the vocabulary in many cases to talk about what our lived experiences are. So I'm always concerned about the very premise of the question. We say, well, the souls of black people, but what does it mean to be black and American in the 21st century? And how is that the same or different from what it meant in 1914 
1870. I mean, it's a really complicated puzzle. It, it, it really is. You know, you 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 touched on it in a piece that was in the Daily Coast back in um, October, the beginning of October, and you posed the question, what shall we do with the white people? Ferguson mm-hmm. in America needs a better class of racists. And outside of the context of the Koch brothers and the I, I call them the corp, uh, the corrupt one percent. You define and frame privilege as the ability to deny reality by creating a bubble of willful ignorance around around oneself. So let me ask you: Is there uh, black privilege in contrast to white privilege? In that, in the context of the definition that you gave it, willful ignorance around oneself. Well, all ignorant people are not benefiting from white privilege, so we got to attack the premise there. And I mean, I would consign, and you hear that language too when you talk to these white supremacists, colorblind, symbolic and aversive white racists, racially resentful white folks, those who traffic in the sewer of the right wing media that I often pick comments on and try to monitor. And trust me, I got to put on some long gloves to dig, uh, to dig through that political feces, as I like to call it, on ChaunceyDeVega.com. So the idea of black privilege is an oxymoron. I mean, it's a nonsense made up word, just like reverse racism. So there is no privilege that comes with being black in the United States and probably mm-hmm. around the world in the 21st century. Is there, are there relative privileges that come with having money, despite the fact that may, one may be of color? Sure. But even then we know that the black and the brown, uh, middle class and upper class and rich, still live very, very different lives from their white uh, compatriots and equals in terms of class mobility. We also know, again, empirical data, because you know folks who read my stuff know I deal in the data. We got the, we got the research. Racism is not an opinion. Racism is a fact, and I often shake my head when you see how the public discourse transforms things that are known knowns into unknown unknowns. So we know that a black person born into to the top 20th percentile of income and wealth is more likely to fall down within a generation to the bottom quintile than a poor white person who was born poor is to go to the top. So stated otherwise, a poor white person is more likely to become rich than a black person is to stay rich. So we mm-hmm. know that even for the black upper class, that race and class matter. So, so black privilege is really an oxymoron. Do we have folks across the color line who have cultivated ignorance, who live a life of willful denial about empirical reality? Absolutely. I don't know if you saw it. Um, and I wouldn't say it was a denial of empirical reality. I would just say it's bad parenting, and I think he was well-intentioned. But in the Washington Post, I don't know if it was yesterday or it will be out to, uh, tomorrow, they had an article by the gentleman. He's written 15 books. He wrote a very popular book called Our Kind of People, The Lives of the Black Rich and the Upper Class. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he had a story, I don't know if you saw it, about basically raising his kids. He's a product of the Is this Otis Graham? Oh, yes. Is it Otis Graham? Yeah, he, he's, a, he's a black upper middle class pimp. Yeah, that's him, yep. Yeah. So he basically talks about trying to raise his kids with the hope and the dream that having money will insulate them from white racism and white supremacy. So his kid goes to boarding school. Of course he encounters white racism and basically has a breakdown and doesn't know how to handle it because his parents have not given him the armor. And I, and I commend the brother for writing publicly about something that in a lot of ways should just be private business. So he talks about it in a public way, and that was his choice. But I'm saying, what's going on even with our folk in the 21st century who should know better to actually teach your kids that if you just ignore racism, it'll go away, that you may have money and racism won't touch you? That's like telling somebody, well, I can ignore the rain. I'm going to ignore gravity. I mean, it's delusional thinking. Well, you know, Otis Graham is a graduate of Harvard College. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, Harvard University. 
And he has written a number of books which, in my mind, have are intended to set him aside as something special, mm-hmm. when in fact he is uh, for for uh, if if I in con in in context of of your piece, what shall we do with the white people? He lives in a bubble of willful ignorance around oneself. He wrote a book about his experience at Harvard and how he was so ill-prepared to be black at Harvard and how it affected his life and um, how he didn't have any black friends and he didn't know how to because he had gone to upper-class elite boarding schools. He didn't know how to deal with the Black Student Association. I mean, it's, you know, kind of like Toure's story. Uh, (laughs) And then he wrote another one about his blackness and his lack of understanding of his blackness when he was in corporate America. So, you know, he's just selling, uh, I want to be special. I'm not like all of those blacks, but here is the problem in dealing with my special kind of issues. So I give him very little credit. He and and, and Clarence Thomas um, were at Yale Law School together, so they were buddies. Two peas but, in a pod, but, huh? <laughs> yeah, but but I hear what you're saying, and, and, and it takes me to my question about when and how we educate the mainstream media about how they can they perpetuate a foolish kind of ignorance of the issue of race in America by the fact that this piece that he wrote that Otis Graham wrote is going to appear either today in the Washington Post or tomorrow it was all over the internet and people were sopping it up because they don't understand that there are 5,000 Otis Grahams who have a vacuous understanding of race in America. Maybe I'm channeling my inner Noam Chomsky here, but why, uh-huh. would, we even, why would we even expect the uh, mainstream establishment media to speak truth to power about any issue when they are one of the main organs of power and in an organ of legitimating, number one, the plutocracy. Right? They may argue amongst themselves, but it's an argument within a very exclusive and elite club. There's actually a great movie uh, called Night Stringer. If anyone uh, came out last week, and it's about stringers, who are basically the folks who get the videos for the evening news. And it's really, really, sm- it's really, really smart, and it should win a few Oscars. I-, I don't know if the general public gets its very conservative politics, because on the surface it seems so radical and problematic and challenging and usurping of, of the dominant narrative, but it's not. But the point is they have a great moment in the movie where the stringer brings in the videotape, and the woman who eventually hires him becomes his contact at this L.A. news station, basically says, we like crime with white victims. We, like, uh, we don't want to see anything with poor people because who cares? Our audience wants to be scared. And think about the evening news as a woman running down the street on fire, being chased by somebody with a knife. So it's really about spectacle, and it's about entertainment. So if we expect the corporate news media, which is now run, I believe, the mainstream media in this country, the media in general is run by three corporations, to actually speak truth to power on any issue, we are damn fools. And that's why you need well, that it, it goes journalism, to the, it the goes alternative to the media, and others. 
it goes to the piece uh, about what Dr. Cornel West has been talking about over the last three three uh, weeks or so, and that is even the responsibility of black folks in mainstream media to be an alternative, and they are not. Which is why I asked the the question about um, the willful ignorance of, or pose the, the rhetorical question about the willful ignorance of mainstream media in race in uh, on the issues of race in America. Mm-hmm. I mean, and like you said, um, thinking about the the few black and brown faces you do see in the mainstream twenty four seven news cycle, and again, you know, going back to Chomsky and others, the folk who are on the news, right? They're the equivalent of somebody on the assembly line making a car. They have little to no say about what that car is going to be. They're just putting the parts together. So they have a role to play. Now, sometimes they can push those boundaries, and sometimes you see a little glimmer of truth on some mainstream news networks where folks are pushing against the, the boundaries in that box. I'm thinking about Kings of Comedy, where uh, Steve Harvey uh-huh. was talking about his first job, where he had to go to this uh, juke joint run by this white hillbilly guy, and he basically had to stand on top of a box and do his comedy, and if he fell off the box, he'd lose his job and not get paid for the night. So you get inside of the system and understand there is very, 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 very narrow discourse for what you can say. And one of the dominant narratives, you know, we'll leave Fox News out of it because Fox News is a right-wing propaganda machine. Of those. They're, they're the most honest network on TV, to be frank. You know exactly what you're getting there. That's why they're so damn dangerous. The fact is their role is to basically legitimate this narrative of racial progress, that we are in post-civil rights era America. You have a black president who apparently is somehow responsible for the country being ruined, even though the Republicans said they would destroy him. You're not allowed to actually talk about all the systemic uh, and mountains of evidence about systemic white supremacy, racism, and sexism. You can't talk about that. And I'm sure you've seen it over your career. Uh, what happens when somebody actually goes down the TV in a cogent, intelligent, and clear and direct way tells the truth? You don't see them again. <laughs> or they, very, they are disappeared. Like, We're not having that crazy Negro or Latino. Or <laughs> Hell no. So that you're, woman. you're playing within a very, very, very narrow system. And one of the things I've learned over these three years, and I've been blessed to have many opportunities, and hopefully we'll have many more, again, always thanking uh, the folks who've reached out to me, both in public and in private, is that you really have to learn the limits and the way that you present yourself and the things that you can say and how you can let that truth see, uh, slip out from time to time. But you have mm-hmm, to understand mm-hmm. this is a system and it's a business. And just like with Ferguson, like you uh, alluded to earlier, I have uh, my new podcast series, Season 3 of the podcast on ChaunceyDeBega.com, Shameless Self-Promotion, so people will check it out. The next two episodes, I actually was uh, blessed to talk to uh, uh, Pastor Renita, I believe, uh, McBride. I always mess up her last name. And uh, Renita Lampkin, and she's actually a white uh, anti-racist activist and a pastor who's in Ferguson. She's, uh, you probably yes. saw her. She was one of the people who yeah. was shot mm-hmm. by the wooden side. So I had a great conversation with her and also uh, Mr. Lou Du Bois, the Washington Spectator. He was also in Ferguson reporting. And we were talking about the sort of media circus and spectacle around, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. Everything in Ferguson is still going on. Well, that explosion was the result of decades of small, minor, and large acts of disrespect, racism, and hostility towards black and brown people. But the mm-hmm. media shows up. If it bleeds, it leads. The story's over. And then, you know what? When that verdict, or rather the grand jury decision comes out this week or next, it'll probably be next week or in two weeks, because now the election's over, that place is going to explode. And then they'll run mm-hmm. back with their hands up saying, oh, my God, but you know what the dominant frame is going to be? Before, they had a little sympathy for black and brown folk who've been beaten down and killed by these cops. The new frame will be about black violence, black disorder, and black criminality. And the dominant narrative will say, the system worked. There was mm-hmm, a grand jury. Mm-hmm. This man was found innocent. Now it's the blacks 
who are not really being Americans. It's the blacks who mm-hmm. are misbehaving. Mm-hmm. And it's as predictable as the sun rising tomorrow. But they're going to treat it as though it's a revelation. Well, you know, it's really interesting in the souls of black folks, which is a reader that I have with me very often when I go back to it. Um, a theologian and philosopher and our common ground voice, Dr. Cornel West, in 1993, critiqued the absence of effective black leadership Um in black folks, the souls of black folks, Du Bois questioned the leadership role of Booker T. Washington and his apologies toward white. Uh, du Bois acknowledged Washington's sincerity and successes, but he wrote something so very similar to what Cornell, Dr. Cornell West is saying today. Um, and 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 I mean, um, Cornel West and and a lot of the media, a lot of black folks are saying, oh, he's just doing it because um, he wasn't invited to the White House or um, President Obama threw him under the bus, whatever. But this is he he was writing about this in 1993, a century later after Du Bois wrote The Soul of Black Folks. This was in 1993, he he, he wrote, How do we account for the absence of the Frederick Douglasses, Sojourner Truths, Martin Luther King Jr.'s, Malcolm X's, and Fannie Lou Hamer's in our time? Why hasn't black America produced intellectuals of the caliber of W.E.B. Du Bois? And I have to pose that question, too. And I have to pose it in the context of our my my premise at this point is that we are losing our souls. We are losing our souls because we are not taking care, developing the kind of organizing and strategies necessary to maintain our role in this society. So what do we do about that, Chauncey? Well, if I had that answer, I'd have a foundation, and I'd have a whole lot of money, and I'd be jet-setting and high-flying like Ric Flair from the Four Horsemen. So <laughs> answer, perhaps a lose. I mean, you know, you know, I'm a wrestling geek, but I've but I got to be serious for a moment, because you've got to balance your smiles and cries. You know, you were talking earlier about trying to keep taking your vacation. Like, I was lucky enough because of the friends of the website to take my constitutional, went out to Comic-Con here in Chicago, because you've got to recharge your batteries. And it's always funny. Yeah, you when really I meet, do. When I meet, you got to. I mean, was, again, going back to racial battle fatigue, I got a piece I wrote about the concept, and I'm sure you're probably familiar with it, and your leaders too, that uh, psychologists have come up with called racial battle fatigue. It's a way of basically summarizing how marginalized people, it's not necessarily race, but in society it's predominantly race, black Americans and black Americans in particular, are victims of PTSD. And all those microaggressions and all the systemic issues with inequality around access to health care, job um, opportunities, income, wealth, etc., quite literally kills you. It creates stress, mm-hmm. anxiety, it takes away your wealth and your resources, and it makes you sick. So whenever I've been lucky enough, and you were joking, you're going to come to Chicago and figure out who a brother is, I've actually had these interesting encounters with you where people are like, wait a minute, I've seen you on TV. Or wait a minute, you look familiar. And they'll actually say, are you so-and-so? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I look pretty much the same. You know, one of my friends said, you know, you look a little different. I was like, yeah, that's why I'm hitting the gym. I'm going to lose 20. That TV adds some weight to you. But point being, 
they're often surprised, a few times I've met people, that I try to be a happy, balanced person. They're like, you're not serious and angry. I'm like, we've got too much stuff to do in life to walk around and be obsessed and internalize mm-hmm. a system that means us harm. So you've got to keep mm-hmm. your head up and you've got to stay positive. But going back to Booker T. Washington and, uh, Frederick, and uh, Brother Du Bois, I think they're both misunderstood in a lot of ways. Booker T., think about where we would be as a people. If we had taken Booker T's wisdom and advice about started going to trade school, about creating businesses, about understanding that in some ways the political and economic are separate, because Booker T, you know, folks uh, far smarter than I have have written about this, was the product of slavery. He was a poor man, right? He's a child of the mm-hmm. South, mm-hmm. and he's writing about his material. Now, I think he overstretched, and Du Bois was right to call him out by saying that you know black and white folk can be as separate as the fingers on one hand, all right, and that our economic fortunes are somehow going to be separate from our lack of political power. But Du Bois was a, prod- a product of the black upper class. He wasn't a slave. Right? So he's writing from his very privileged, bourgeois, Fabian point of view. And there's a great book, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and his philosophy. It's written by a political scientist you may know, Adolph Reed. And Brother Adolph yes. Reed really puts a wonderfully critical and corrective insight into how Du Bois's work, especially the idea of dual consciousness or double consciousness, has been misunderstood. And how mm-hmm. folks focus so much on the souls of black folk that they forget Du Bois wrote about Reconstruction. His dissertation was on the suppression of the transatlantic slave trade. He was a political activist. He wrote science fiction novels. The man, damn, how old was he when he died? A hundred? All the things that he saw. So he has this rich legacy, and everybody focuses in on one sentence in the souls of black folk about double consciousness, because that's mm-hmm. the book they were assigned in their intro to AFAM studies course in college. And they distill mm-hmm. it and misunderstand it. And then they don't really see the whole vision and the complexity and continuum of African-American political thought. Because uh, Brother Booker T. in private was funding anti-lynching organizations and early versions of the NAACP. But he was playing the game differently. Right? So I think yeah. we have to have a lot more nuance in terms of how we think about black politics and also the material realities and structures that limit the certain types of strategies and opportunities that we can create for ourselves as we think about the black freedom struggle. Because in some ways, again, playing the counterfactual, because I said, love coming on the show, we've got a lot of time to talk. With the, the idea of the black freedom struggle, I often, you know, when Obama won, I was happy like everybody else. My mother called me up crying. Oh, we couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe it. And I said, Mom, think about this. I said this the next day. I said, this almost sounds like something written in the 1970s or 80s, like a conspiracy novel by some young black or brown or white radical. Be like, you know what? What would happen if a black man gets elected president? You'll lose all legitimacy in terms of talking about white supremacy. In a lot of ways, it's actually <laughs> no. Think about it. In a lot of ways, it's yeah, it, it 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 really in a lot of ways uh, we have have lost a portion of our traction. That's right. Because now people say you got a black guy who's president twice. What the hell yes. are you people talking about? And then even more bizarre, talking about people enveloped in this right-wing propaganda, white racial resentment machine on both sides of the aisle, you actually have a good percentage of white folk in recent surveys who think that racism against white people, because no such thing, that's an oxymoron, again, it's silly talk, is a bigger social problem than discrimination against people of color. So I'm yep. proud of Obama. I've met the man, seen him you know, walking down the street, said hi to him on occasion, cool folk, and I'm glad he's in there. He's the better of the two horrible options that we had. But that hasn't been said. How do we locate him within the black freedom struggle? Because maybe history will look back and be like, he was the first and last black president. Number one, he's the president <laughs> We've got to take the year a break. of the American Empire. And what the heck, what is that footnote going to say? Be like, man, hope and change was a hell of a disappointment and a problem. You're listening to Our Common Ground, and our guest tonight is Chauncey DeVega. And we're so pleased to uh, have him with us uh, tonight. He is 
at chancydevega.com. Uh, we are Respectable Negroes is the name of the place where you can read his social, political, and cultural criticism and writings about living in America. This is our common ground. Um, I do have an announcement uh, for you tonight. Uh, we are less than a week from November 12, 2014, where people of good conscience and a thirst for racial justice will gather in Freedom Plaza in Washington, D.C. at 12.30 p.m. to demand an end to the racist state-sanctioned murders of black people by lawless white police around the nation. If you would like to have more information about uh, this memorial um, goes beyond Ferguson, beyond Michael Brown. It is time for us to demand that justice be um, be done, that justice be regarded, that justice, the issue, the concept of justice be acknowledged and that it becomes real. You can call the Spirit House Project in Atlanta and speak with Ruby Sales, our members of her staff, uh, to join the gathering on November 12th in Washington, D.C. at Freedom Plaza at 12.30 p.m. The number is 202-431-0764. That number is 202-431-0764, and we're hoping that Ruby Sales will be joining us. We know that Ruby Sales will be joining us later in this broadcast to talk more about it. Our guest tonight, Chauncey DeVega. This is our common ground, and we'll be right back. Drilling down, just damn. When injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. This is Alpha, hosting the best of Pushback Talk Radio. The Alpha Show, only at Truthless Network, Fridays, 10 p.m. I want to know why I'm fine one minute and the next. My body aches so bad I can't move. I want to know why my hair is falling out. I'm only 17. I'm tired all the time. Now, this rash. I just want to know what's going on. When you don't have the right answers, it may be time to ask your doctor the right question. Could I have lupus? For answers, for support, for hope, visit couldihavelupus.gov or call 1-800-994-9662. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office on Women's Health and the Ad Council. Yes, this is Janice Graham. Did you say it's Media Matters? Oh, yes. India is moving her show to Tuesday nights at 11 p.m. It's going to be the I Declare Show Nighttime Edition. It begins on November 18th. Thank you for calling. 
And please spell the name I N D I A Declare. Real raw and right now. The I Declare Show. Moving its broadcast time and date. India is moving to Tuesday. The I Declare Late Night with India Declare on Blog Talk Radio. Coming November 18th, the I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern Time. Real, raw, and right now. India Declare, real, raw, and right now. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, We had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now back to our common ground. here tonight at Our Common Ground as we look at and examine the souls of black folks and where we are, our guest, Chauncey DeVega, and we thank him so much for joining us and for you. Our lines are open at 347-838-9852. Call in and join this conversation about the souls of black folks. If you have not read the book, you should And if you do not subscribe to We Are Respectable Negroes, you definitely should. Chauncey, thanks so much for being with us. I, I, I just, there's just so much going on in the lives of black folks. And I I think that sometimes we just really have to pause 
and think about what it does to the body spirit, the body mm-hmm. of black people, uh, to have a, the kinds of attacks, the kinds of resurgence of, I mean, if, even if you look at just the way in which in this midterm, voter suppression and voter fraud across the country. Thousands of black people thrown off the voter rolls. Thousands of black people went to vote, couldn't vote. I mean, I don't know if it's uh, someone had smartly pointed out, I don't know if it's 2014 or 1876 and the end of Reconstruction, but thinking about, as you said, these assaults about voting, and, and the Republican Party, as I said, you know, regular folk are too worried about their uh, security and their jobs, their sanity, and they have to self-medicate through, you know, as I like to say, stupid human tricks on the TV, watching reality TV, perhaps drinking drugs, love, food, whatever, because we have to numb ourselves in whichever way we choose to to get through this uh, day-to-day. But for folks who are so inclined, a lot of what we're seeing with the Republicans can be traced back, number one, this is an old strategy. There's actually a white supremacist, because, again, I try to observe many circles, who basically outlined the Republican electoral strategy about two years ago on a website, which I will not mention, but it's a very prominent white supremacist website. And he basically said, when an era where white folk are declining will no longer be a quote-unquote majority, which is not true, but we can talk about that too, the options are voter suppression, the options are to study Jim Crow, to use those tactics to demobilize, harass, and terrorize black and brown people, the, uh, you need to create insecurity among that public, and you need to put every single obstacle you can in place. And he actually outlined a state-by-state approach uh, and also using the courts to roll back civil and voting rights and also empowering these corporations, which he did not speak to directly, because, again, we can't take our eye off the ball. This is white supremacy and the plutocrats and the banksters all working together. So we're chasing the ball that is voting. Like we're the, the, the happy dog that's, oh, they're throwing the ball. Let me chase that ball. Because that vote has been denied to us for so long. But we're like Pavlov's dogs. We've been trained like so many other people. But the real action now is elsewhere. And it is a terrifying time to be alive in a lot of ways because you may not have the KKK formally riding down the street in their hoods, but you've got cops that are killing uh, black folk every 28 hours. A young black person is 20 times more likely to be killed by the cops than a white person. We have a destroyed economy. We have... Uh, a media that is irresponsible. And, I mean, look at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court of 2014 looks like the court that would have given the Dred Scott decision. So these are perilous and scary times, but if you take a step back, knowledge is power, and you understand what's going on, you'll see that the white right, they're playing 3D Star Trek chess, as I like to say. The Democrats and other folk are playing checkers. And this, it was wholly predictable that the white right realized, the Republicans said, well, the American people don't like our ideas. We know that from public opinion data. They generally don't support any of our agendas, but what we're going to do is make sure that we're going to shrink the electorate. We're going to gerrymander, use gerrymandering, we're going to use the courts, we're going to use interest groups, and we're going to make sure that corporations are people, just like we saw with that dreadful Citizens United and now the Hobby Lobby decision. And, hey, we may not be able to win if it was a straight vote, but you know what? We can keep those people from voting, and then we can stigmatize them. Then we can say their votes aren't real votes, and that's what really needs to be said. So with the white right and these Republicans with voter suppression, and all these noxious voter ID laws that you don't need, it's a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. They're basically saying that, God forbid, one white conservative's vote be canceled, quote-unquote, by 10,000 black or brown people whose votes should count, because we're the real citizens. And that's what they're really saying. They're saying this is a white man's hair and vote democracy. And as we said earlier, there are so few of us who are willing to speak truth to power and call it out. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the thing is that, 
we have an obligation to also, and I, I know I've been using this word a lot tonight, shore up our people. The the kind of deflation, the kind, I mean, it is as though we are being injured over and over by watching these psychopaths, the psychopathic behavior. I mean, the fact that a Rick Scott was able to steal an election in Florida, the fact that, and and and, and he is he is symbolic of the kind of racist political existence that we all get very threatened by is, is another injury. Uh, Chauncey, I'm going to have to put a, a, a pin in in that thought for a minute, but I just saw uh, Ruby Sales um, uh, pop up on our board, and I really wa- want to give her an opportunity to talk about what she's doing in Washington on November 12th with the Spirit House Project and how important this kind of action is in terms of shoring up our black souls because you and I we can blink and begin to process some things but we have people in our communities we have elderly people who are afraid of what they are hearing in the public discourse who have become hopeless and will become helpless in the in the in the content of both the political and the social implications of black dead bodies in, on the street who the police have become in this country and the images of that in the context of a history of of terrorism against black people Ruby Sales, thank you so very much for joining us tonight. I know that you are busy and you are getting ready for November 12th. Tell us about it. Well, November 12th is a day of reckoning. It's a day where we will alert the nation to the fact that we are sick and tired of state-sanctioned murders of black people by white police. And we will show the the enormity of those uh, murders by calling the names of of a thousand African-American people whom white police have killed since 2007. This is a grave crisis, and we are moving, we're, we're standing with Ferguson, but we're also making this a larger question so that people understand that Ferguson is not an isolated incident, and understand that we are living in a militarized society where police are are armed with massive weapons of destruction that they aim at the black community. And we want to also say that we also recognize that other races in this country are also being shot by the police. 
But because of the unprecedented numbers of black people, we are using black people as a representation of the issues because every issue that is inherent in these murders are manifested with the police assaults against African-Americans, and let's put in that children and women, because we usually think of these assaults and murders as being men. And finally, Mm -hmm. I want to say something. Although we're focusing on the murders, it occurred to me that we're also going to be talking about police torture. I've been grappling with the difference between police brutality and police torture, and I think the correct word is state police torture. Brutality somehow minimizes the impact, the intentionality, and the pain and the consistency of the violence against black people, the physical violence, the physical violence of tasering, the physical violence of being put in a chokehold. That's brutality. If that were happening in other countries, we would not, I mean, it's torture. If it were happening in other countries, we would call it torture, not brutality. I I, I hear you, and I, I really uh, am looking forward to November 12th, uh, Ruby, and joining the Spirit House Project in this effort. I think that we do have to raise, you know, one of the reasons, and Chauncey DeVega is with us tonight, talking about the souls of black folks mm-hmm. and how we have to embrace efforts to ensure that all of our people are holding on. You know, as you always say, we've been here before. We've and been Boy here before. Really, the boy talked of our future. He talked of his presence, but he talked of our future in the souls of black folks. And one of the things that I want to say about having been here before is that the police have always been foot soldiers for white supremacy, whether it was the patrols during enslavement, whether or not it was the police during Southern apartheid. The police have always been the foot soldiers for black murders. And when I want to say something to people as an as an opportunity to hope, we've been here before, and what we've learned is that no weapons, no torture, can kill the people's impulse for freedom, and ultimately, no t- tyranny lives forever, and the people ultimately prevail. Now we've got to do more than prevail this time. We've got to sustain that which we have created. Now, Ruby, uh, let's give out some information to people who want to join Thank you. <laughs> uh, the Spirit House Project uh, on November 12th at 12.30 p.m. at Freedom at Plaza. At 12.30 p.m., Freedom Plaza. And it is fitting that we have this in Freedom Plaza, which was the plaza that was given in honor of emancipated slaves. And here we are more than 150 years later 
the descendants of these emancipated slaves fighting for their lives. So we'll mm-hmm. be there at 12.30 p.m., Freedom Plaza, 14th and Pennsylvania Avenue, and we will have with us Sarah Collins Rudolph, whose sister, Adamae Collins, was killed at the 16th Street Baptist Church, and she was injured tremendously with glass, and she has a glass eye from that injury. And we're bringing her to show the continuity of these assaults on African-American people. So she will connect us, connect our day's experience with the past to let us know that we are looking at a long line of police murders against black people in this country, that this is not new. That's Pennsylvania Avenue and 14th Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., November 12th, 12.30 p.m. at Freedom Plaza. Ruby, uh, people and can contact you. Let me just say, you. it's a nonviolent gathering, and agent provocateurs are not welcome. We want to have an event that is nonviolent, and anyone mm-hmm. who comes to stir up violence we will remove them as agent provocateurs. We do and not want this in going. Um and 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 people can email you at Ruby Sales R U B Y S A L E S at Spirithouseproject dot org or call you at two oh two four three one oh seven six four and I am encouraging people at your local communities to organize and be there on November 12, 2014. And I look forward, uh, Ruby, in joining this effort. Thank and we you want to so thank much. You so and much. we hope people will come and stand up. We've got to stand up. Well, we're hoping to try to arrange some kind of live broadcast from the yes. event uh, on November 12th in, uh, from Washington, D.C. And uh, we'll have more information, so you should, uh, everyone should make sure you check both uh, Ruby Sales' um, Facebook page, R U B Y, capital S A L E S, and the Our Common Ground with Janice Graham uh, Facebook page for further information. Ruby, thank you so very much. And say hi to Chauncey DeVega. He's one of hi, our. Hi, how are you? Hello, how are you? I I was listening to you earlier. Thank you very much for your astute remarks. Thank you for all your hard work and energy. We stand in we stand on your shoulders. Thank you so much and we stand on yours too. You know, Chauncey, um there is something to be said about the way in which us activists of the sixties were trained. Ruby was a leader in SNCC. Um and um, rode with Freedom Riders um, during the early part of the Civil Rights Movement. And that training and how you go about organizing a community is, is none of the principles ever change. And, and I'm hoping that um, in the very near future at TruthWorks Network, Ruby will be joining us as a host to help people understand how to organize at the local level. 
because this is Alternative Empowerment Activist Talk Radio. We don't just talk. We got to keep it real. <laughs> we got to keep it real. That's right. Well, before so I sign down. off, thank you very much, BJ, for all the work that you continue to do. And thank you for the feeding of the souls of African-American people, which is our heartbeat. And without that, we would certainly not be here today. Thank you, Ruby. And um, Uhuru. Uh, to this effort on November 12th. I I hope that the people who should be listening will be listening, and I hope that you will send a copy of the letter that you sent to President Obama about the contemporary lynching and terrorism against black people to Loretta Lynch, the new nominee for the Attorney General. Thank you. That's a very good idea, and I just want to say we've recently written a letter to the Congressional Black Caucus asking them where have they been. Yeah, that's a real good question. Did they answer? They haven't answered yet, but we invited them to come to the memorial, not as politicians making speeches, but to come to the memorial to stand with the people to say that we are part of the struggle not distant from it, and that we come as ordinary people standing beside our community, not as politicians, to uh, say that we respect the efforts and we respect the people's struggle so much that we're willing to come and be silent. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, and I hope that people out there will pick up the phones Monday through Wednesday of next week and call members of the Black Caucus. Caucus. The Congressional and Black Fudge Caucus is the is is chairperson of the Black Caucus. Well, we'll see if they join you. Thank you, Ruby Sales, and uh, my sister, I love you very much. I love you, too. You are my heroine. Thank you so much for this hard task that you keep on doing. <laughs> and thank you, brother, for your witness, and we appreciate what you're doing also. Thank you for holding up the the rear end and the front end. Well, thank you. Like I said, you we are in your honor, and we have a debt to you, and we always try to acknowledge that. Thank you. Ruby Sales of Spirit House, I'll give you that number again. It's 202-431-0764 for November 12th at Freedom Plaza in D.C., 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you can, I hope that you will join us. You can write to rubysales at spirithouseproject.org. You see, Chauncey, this never stops. And I'm always reminded when I talk to some of my SNCC comrades and my Black Panther Party comrades uh, that we have been here before. And what we're going through right now, again, giving honor to Sister Ruby again, because as I said, I mean that when I say we stand on the shoulders of ancestors. We have to acknowledge that history is not an orphan. History has parents, and we have to uh, honor that legacy. Thinking about that observation, and I'm going to use a phrase I've tried to remove from my vocabulary because I was overusing it, which is connecting the dots. Now, I, I think Sister Ruby, to piggyback on her observations, 
and also too, I think the, the special nature of your podcast, rather your blog talk radio show, is the extended format that allows us to do some teaching. So as Sister Ruby pointed out, what's going on with these cops killing innocent black people? That's not new. That's their stated function. A lot of folks don't understand that the, the American, modern American police were started and can trace their origins back to the slave patrols of the American slaveocracy. So the police are functioning as designed. And I wrote a piece in the Daily Cost. I got a, you know, thousands of traffic of hits, a lot of angry emails as always, where I basically asked, why are white people surprised when black people are killed by the cops? This is the continuity of American history. This is not new. This should not be a surprise. And then when you connect the dots again back to who's making the money, who has power here, how are the plutocrats gaming the system? Well, the prison system is a business. The more people you can lock up, the more money you can make. And then you connect another dot, which is a concept called uh, it's a concept called uh, it's a secondary citizen, not secondary citizenship. It's uh, not incarcerated citizenship. The thought will come to me. I'm having a, a moment there. Basically, where you're thinking about citizenship, and the Boston Review actually had an article about this, where you're African-American or black or Latino, you're poor, then you're incarcerated, you lose your right to vote, you're afraid to interact with the police, with other rights and obligations that come to you as a citizen. Then you're demoted in terms of the citizenship that you have and in terms of your ability to participate in the public sphere. You go to jail, and we have a lot of data on this. A lot of folks don't know this, actually. Again, this is you know, empirical data by criminologists. I don't know if you've probably read about this, that black folks who are innocent are significantly more likely to come in contact with the police than white people who are guilty. So you have a system that, in a lot of ways, is working precisely as designed. So we need to communicate that teaching from Sister Ruby in our own history so that when people say, oh, my God, I'm shocked, I'm surprised, how could this happen to Michael Brown and all these other people? Well, that's American history. That's our legacy. This is what we've experienced with the Civil Rights Movement, that you know, glorious triumph of the black freedom struggle. That was an anomaly. That was a second American revolution and reconstruction. What we're seeing now with the plutocrats, with the new Gilded Age, that's America's norm in terms of history. Well, it, it, it certainly is, and but one of the things that we have to hold close is that we have to have our own framework of hope so that we can continue to understand how thus we have come this far. You're listening to Our Common Ground, our guest tonight, Chauncey DeVega of We Are Respectable Negroes. Our number is 347 838-9852. If you'd like to join the discussion, speak with uh, Chauncey. He is a respectable Negro sometimes. <laughs> in, the, in the concept, I, thought his, in the concept's important because I said it's a critical. I hate to interrupt you. It's called custodial citizenship. So everyone should go to the Google machine yes. and type in custodial citizenship, and that will help them to really understand the intersection between the prison industrial complex, police brutality, and the plutocrats and the corporation. And it also helps us to understand and to put into context our own existence in this society and the discussion that's going on in this country about immigration. You know, we haven't talked about too much about the 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 GOP, uh, but um, one of the things that the T public hat did today was to call on Loretta Lynch, the new the nominee for attorney general, to weigh in on immigration because that is the way in which they are going to try and corner her. 
Um, and for those of us who uh, would like to invest uh, the President of the United States in regard to his role as the head of the Democratic National Committee, we also have to think about what, over the last three years, the U.S. Supreme Court has done in this country to lay the foundation for what happened on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And nobody's talking about that. Well, you're looking for systemic, rigorous, and informed conversations. We know the fourth estate is more interested in if it bleeds, it leads, and stupid human tricks than it is in any truth-telling. I mean, the fourth estate, what we call the media, and a democracy is supposed to fulfill the watchdog function and also give citizens the information they need to hold their leaders accountable. And uh, in this country, at least, the news media has not been doing that since, you know, probably 60 years. (laughs) (laughs) you're, you're, You're right about that. But one of the things is that we cannot, Chauncey, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this, that we tend to embrace the mechanisms of white supremacy. We tend to think that the courts are going to deliver us. But when you think about how in the context of a white supremacist justice system, who are the judges, who's the jury, and how jury nullification and jury tampering goes on in this country. You can't possibly believe that you're going to get justice out of it, and you mentioned that earlier in the broadcast. We can't begin to accept. We've got to be able to do the critical analysis about what what the judiciary is about in this country. And even to the point, Chauncey, of what our law schools, what the role that they play in creating this disjustice system. You know, I, I, I think, you know, we talk about what, Congressional action needs to happen, needs to take place. But we never think about if every person who wants to fight the system, who wants to be free, decided to go up to the personnel office on Monday morning and say, I want to claim 12 dependents, whether you have one child, no child, no wife, no nothing. And Under the law, you can claim up to 12 without being questioned. And what would that mean in terms of how we can strangle uh, the ability of this power machine to continue to work? If you do it for – I mean, nobody thinks about that as revolution. Yeah, and what you're talking about, that's an old idea about having a tax strike. Basically saying yes. we're going to bleed the system and we're going to rob it of the resources it needs to be militaristic, to de- defang the surveillance society and demand that the American people, because for me this is a human rights issue across lines of race and class, sexuality and gender. Our American society is sick and our mm-hmm. opportunity structure has been distorted. And basically what we have now are all these different ways of siphoning off resources in an era of resource scarcity up to the very, 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 very richest, the 1%, the 5%, the one-tenth of 1%. And there's a concept 
and it's uh, economists use it. It's basically called the velocity of money or the speed of money, and it's basically a way of measuring how fast money moves through the economy. And rich folk in this country, because they've stolen it from the American people, they're free riders, but they, what we would call them is uh, they're rent seekers. They basically have invested themselves into the system. They can call for its downfall and destruction, all the while benefit, benefit, benefiting from it and getting tax cuts. So money and wealth is so concentrated among the very rich in this country and around the world that they have so much money they can't even spend it. And I get frustrated when I, again, see white folk, working class and poor, and others voting against their own self-interest because of the psychological wages of whiteness. And the plutocrat Koch brother Tea Party types at the very top, because the Tea Party is not a grassroots organization. It's an organization created by the John Birchers and the Koch brothers where they're voting against their own self-interest, and they're going to wake up one day and say, oh, my God, how the hell did this happen? And you know who they're going to turn on? Not rich people, not rich white people. They're going to turn on black and brown people. And it's a, it's a play that is not new, and we see it happening right in front of us. And maybe it has to be that white folk who are intelligent and inclined to, to truth-telling, who are progressive in the best sense of the word, need to take their white brothers and sisters aside who are voting against their own self-interest because they can't stand black and brown people and give them a shot in the arm and say, look who's really screwing you over Maybe they, this doesn't be a conversation they have within their own house. Yeah, yeah. Let's go to our phone. Six, seven, eight, you're on the air with Chauncey DeVega, a respectable Negro. Hey, how are you? This is Q calling from Atlanta. Uh, just had a couple Good of curiosity questions. Say it again. Good to hear from you. Yeah, good Thank you. I, I appreciate it. Just a couple of uh, questions. Uh, how does your guest feel about the development or lack thereof when it comes to our young males specifically? The reason why I pose this question is, having traveled and lived live overseas for some time, I've come to understand that the boys here are disenfranchised with knowing who they are based in the structure that they've been raised in. I see boys not as prideful about being male, but I'm curious to what you think. When you say prideful about being male, you mean not having a sit What do you mean by that? What I mean by in other cultures, because uh, I'm part Choctaw, in other cultures, um, let's take Jewish, for example. They have a rite of passage, a celebration for the boy to remind him of his importance to the family and his Jewish community. Latin people have a, some, some type of rite of passage to let him know about uh, La Familia and so on and so forth. But And even Africans have it. But what I don't understand is the boys here, they seem like their whole essence that they've been taught is about women and how to make women happier. It's kind of like um, they don't, they don't, it, you know, when, when a guy from America goes overseas, most of the time he's amazed how he's treated because all the other males get treated like that on a regular basis. But I'm just kind of wondering, can the can the community be saved if the males feel frustrated and disenfranchised? I guess that's what I'm leading to. But I didn't want to mm-hmm. lead the I didn't want to lead the answer though. But okay, let's 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 get a response from Chauncey. Yeah, I mean that's a really rich question. I always try to bracket it by saying we have a crisis 
uh, crust the color line in terms of misogyny in this country um, and sexism. So we've got to deal with that. But I think what you're trying to get at is, you know, and I'm a student of Brother Naeem Akbar, so I certainly have a lot of thoughts about uh, black masculinity and rites of passage and a sense of what it means to be black and male in this society. But I always say we've got to be careful, too, not deflecting by saying this is not just about this image of black hyper-thug masculinity that's circulated by the mass media by folks who do not look like us. Certainly we need to uh, deal with that, right? So we have black men looking at these cartoonish characters that draw on some of the oldest racist stereotypes of the big black buck, the black rapist, the black thug, as their model for manhood. So that's a systemic problem. But I always got to take a step back and say when we talk about what's wrong with black men, I say let's talk about what's wrong with white men too. It was white men in the banker class who destroyed this economy. It's white men and white boys shooting up schools. White men are about 23% of the population, maybe 30 about 70 to 80% of the mass shootings in this country in terms of gun violence, killing little innocent babies at school. So we have a, to have a national conversation about manhood and identity and masculinity and misogyny. But in terms of the black community, I think it comes down to economics and resources. It's hard to be a man when you ain't got a job in the classic sense. Hard to be a man well, when you're in a society would... that feminizes you in the worst sense, going back to my Afrocentric roots, a lot of the work I do respect, where black men are infantilized. And we talked about this last time, and I'll, I'll use one example. You know, I'm a cultural critic. I write about black cultural politics. People laugh at me, and I'll say two things. One is I think one of the most powerful movies in terms of understanding what's going on with black identity, black male under, uh, ghetto underclass identity, is the movie Baby Boy. They should show Baby Boy in every university so people in black <laughs> and others can understand, number one, that this is real. It's exaggerated, but that is a, role, a version of a certain type of black manhood around, among a certain social milieu in this country that is absolutely real. And then the whole phenomenon. People laugh and say, well, it's just style and fashion. It's cyclical. But I'm like, no, it is, but there's something deep here. When you have black men walking around with their pants falling down, they're basically sagging and they're dressing up like babies. Those are swaddling clothes. That's how a child wearing clothes would look. And that's you know, a product of, of, of prison culture, of course. But these brothers and sisters, because they don't have any proper role models of manhood and self-respect and dignity, you know, in many of our communities, their cultural norms are adapted for life within a 10-square block radius. And those cultural norms have no purchase anywhere else. But that haven't been said. If you're not from that environment, that 10-square black radius, you won't have the survival skills necessary to live there. And going back to that Washington Post piece by the brother we talked about earlier who wrote about um, our kind of people, I you know, was joking on Twitter, but I was dead serious that you know, in his story he talks about his son being heartbroken and surprised and shattered because he was called the N-word. I, I won't trivialize he was called the word nigger, word I hate, and it broke him. And so now the young man is afraid to go outside, afraid of the cops, afraid to look white people in the eye, afraid to go to the library. If... I did that. God, you know, rest my father's soul. He taught me a lot. My mother, too. Thank God she's still alive. But if I came home and told my father that a white person called me a nigger and I'm afraid of him and I'm going to hide in the house, he would have hit me upside the head. <laughs> well, well, you know, let me let me finite my question before I uh, move on. Uh, so my, my the core of my question was you don't believe, and I do agree with those points that you made, economic and otherwise, but you don't believe misandry has something to do with that? Oh, misogyny is a learned behavior. I mean, that's no, 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 misandry. Oh, misandry. Uh-huh. Uh, well, misogyny is also oh, misandry, hatred of men. Yeah, that's an argument that a lot of these men rights activist types bring out. I, I really don't think it has any empirical or philosophical basis hmm. in terms of the evidence. Sure, there are women who may hate men, but men have institutional power in this country. So whenever somebody starts talking about men's rights, I treat that the same way that somebody starts talking about the rights of white people and white people's rights. I mean, when the, those who have mm-hmm. power talk about their rights. We have a serious crisis of ethics and values. You're the most powerful. So, 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 so here was my I want to get and, back and, to the original question, and the original question is um, the the 
the bottom line of the original question really is what are we doing about black children and preparing them to be strong and empowered members of this society. Uh, I would point to you that there are a number of movements across the country that are ritualistic, uh, educational for both black men, black boys, and black girls. One of the, the best works that I'm aware of is The Warrior Method by Dr. Raymond Wimbush, hmm. uh, which, which establishes a process that black boys should go through in this country, and it has a study guide and a community organizing guide that provides the framework for doing just what you say. There are many women's organizations, the Negro um, Women's League, uh, a number of the uh, women's Greek organizations, Delta Sigma Theta, Alpha uh, Alpha Kappa Al, uh, Alpha Phi Alpha, um, uh, one of the fraternities that do have manhood training programs, and they have some ceremonial kind of African-based processes uh, embedded in those programs. So I think that people out in communities who are concerned uh, need to be pressing our our community centers that are funded by uh, taxpayer dollars. We need to be challenging our schools about what kinds of uh, supportive programs are available to African-American girls and boys. We need to be doing a lot of things, uh, working with our libraries to make sure that there are reading groups for both black males and black females during their teenage years to get them prepared to take on the agency of their citizenship. Well, I thank you for your time, and I thank you for giving me the information about uh, Dr. Wayne Bush. I'll take that. Have a good one, and uh, and, uh, I'll and Dr. To Naeem Akbar, because Dr. Naeem Akbar, and I'm glad Chauncey brought that up, who is an Our Common Ground voice and a very good friend. I have known Dr. Akbar since I was a little girl uh, when he was Luther Weems. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, um, if if you study those works and 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 pay, and pay attention to what those works are doing, I think that you will find that there are people um, writing about it, developing programs about it, and actually uh, implementing it. I can't think of his first name. I think it's David Wilson in Detroit that started a network of workshops for black boys across the country. Well, I so thank, thank you, you again. for your call, and, and we hope you'll be with us each Saturday night. It was a good question. Very good issue. Chauncey, you see we have um, a lot of work to do, and it's minds and brilliance like yours that stimulates our thinking about what are the issues? What What is the import of the events 
that are around us. And we thank 365 for for his call. Chauncey, um, i got to get you to be here more. I appreciate it. I mean, you're so kind and generous, and you say such complimentary things, making a black man blush. (laughs) Well, blush on. (laughs) Croon me, baby. (laughs) As As your Internet godmother just... Croon on me. Um, <laughs> but we want to remind people that they can find you at Chauncey DeVega, D E V E G A dot com. We are respectable Negroes, and we always treasure the insight uh, and the analysis that you bring to these issues. You see, I'm, I'm laughing and I'm feeling better. You, you know, that was your purpose tonight, because I tell you, all this stuff was really getting to me, um, uh, and people have been trying to force me to take a vacation for a long, long time. Of course, uh, we always vacation um, in some part, some country in Africa a lot, and too many things are going on. Hmm. But Chauncey, thank you so very much. You are always welcome to our microphones, and maybe we can get you to do a weekly show on this network. Perhaps we'll see, but shameless self-promotion. Like I said, you got the website. i got my podcast. It'll be weekly now going forward. A lot of great guests, so folks can check that out, certainly. Go to com, and also I have my new YouTube channel that just started today, a few hours ago, so there'll be oh, some okay. good information on there, too. So by uh-huh. all means, How do we find you on YouTube? Just go to YouTube and type in uh, Chauncey DeVega, and it should come up. So we're just getting that started, you know, starting to get some followers and some other folks that have videos from the website, other material, the podcast, and a lot of wonderful we'll put a, people on the podcast. We'll put a, um, a link on our Facebook page and on our websites. All right, I appreciate uh, it. And start running, you know, at ourcommonground-talk.ning.com. We carry the videos and YouTube channels of all of our guests. So oh, it's that'll good be that you let me into the inside news about <laughs> we are respectable Negroes. Yes, it's and been a say hi to all of your friends out there. Um, Pap is still on the case. Um, I, I'm passing you off to my friend Norman Goldman. Um and I sent him some of your work because I think he needs some help over there because they're eating him up as he's trying to explain all this stuff. To now, who's, now, where's he at now? Remind me. Uh, the Norman Goldman Show. All right. Good guy. Norm is a good guy. Um, I don't go 24 hours without listening to his broadcast. He's a daily. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. I appreciate he's out of, at, out of uh, Los Angeles. So, Chauncey DeVega, you be well. Continue and to be too. a respectable Negro as much as you can. <laughs> I will try to continue on my Negress journey here at Our Common Ground. Thanks a lot, Chauncey. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Chauncey DeVega. It's ChaunceyDeVega.com. Thank you all for being with us here tonight uh, in our chat room uh, we've got lots of friends and followers, Brother Brock, 
at Philadelphia PA is with us tonight, and we thank him. India Declare, don't forget, she's moving her broadcast on November 18th to 11 p.m. on Tuesday nights. How about that? And, of course, the Our Common Ground administrator, uh, Loga Michelle Odom, is in the house, and we thank her. Nancy Lockhart was with us, and Nat Gilchrist is is there, and of course, uh, all of our guests that choose to be uh, anonymous. Don't forget that you should subscribe to us at uh, Facebook, um, and uh, we're at Twitter at Janice OCG. Uh, we are at a number of places all over the Internet. We're still taking your calls at 347-838-9852 if you'd like to chime in. But we want to really encourage you to uh, to read, if you have not, The Souls of Black Folk. It holds a unique position as a religious commentary, a social critique, Uh, a a testimony to the human spirit. It's a literary treasure, and it is an empirical analysis of political and economic conditions in 1903 when it was written as it is today. At the heart of the legacy is is victory in in the face of ad. And that is what we are facing. Now, you might have your house, you might have your car, you might have your $50,000 in in a 501K or $100,000 in a 501K or at Schwab or TD uh, or wherever you have it. But we have to think that at the end of the day, we are one people. And um, Sorrow Songs elevates the spirit of an oppressed people and instill hope. Uh, du Bois wrote candidly about what is required to effectively combat racial inequities. And, his, and, and I want to quote him. He wrote, only by a union of intelligence and sympathy across the color line in this critical period of the republic shall justice and right triumph. His observation was true then, and it remains so true today. During the entire month of November until the 29th, we are going to be looking at the souls of black folks. Who are we? How do we endure? And how do we continue to survive? What shall we do, as Chauncey DeVega uh, raises in the Daily Coast and on We Are Respectable Negroes? What shall we do with the white people? Uh, (laughs) um, I just 
think that we have to begin to see ourselves as part of something greater than ourselves. Our role in this country has always been and will continue to be to act as the barometer of of the moral fiber of this country. And we can't continue to keep saying we're sick and tired, that we're going to give up, that we are, there's nothing that can be done. There is always something that is in need of being done, whether it's with our children, whether it is with with uh, elderly people in our community, we just know that there is something that can be done. Oh, I'm letting you know that it ain't no gun they make that can kill my soul. Oh, no. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is be free. You're listening to TruthWorks Network, the Alpha Show. Common ground. Talk that matters. We know what to do with radio. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you.
we go out tonight, I do want to remind you that workers are boarding up windows in Ferguson, Missouri, and police are restocking tear gas as they prepare for civil unrest that could follow a grand jury's decision on whether to indict a police officer in the shooting death of the unarmed 18-year-old Michael Brown. Will there be justice for Michael Brown? Every 28 hours. That is what you need to be focused on. Every 28 hours. A black person is terrorized or killed by a police officer in this country. We hope that uh, you will go to uh, Facebook and join us as we continue in this great struggle for the souls of black folks in America. We hope that you will continue, and we thank you for your support of this broadcast. This will be, well, actually, we just passed our 30th anniversary. And if Olivia Simmons is continuing to listen, we thank her for her service in building a what, 30 years ago, what we thought would be just a radio show. But we are alternative activists, Empowerment Talk Radio. Thank you for being with us tonight. been listening to our common ground thank you for joining us tonight we'll be right back here at our common ground 10 p.m next saturday and we hope that you will join us once again our common ground empowering black america to achieve itself thanks to our listeners our callers and our dear brother chauncey de vega for joining us once again good night have an empowering weekend i'm janice graham And I'll be listening for you.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.